Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I don't want you to miss this amid the crush of news. Herschel Walker was campaigning in the Georgia Senate runoff when he went into this Long, convoluted story about a movie he'd seen uh, late at night on TV. It was a little hard to follow. And he said, I don't know if you know, but vampires are some cool people, are they not? But let me tell you something I found out. A werewolf can kill a vampire. Did you know that? I never knew that. So I don't want to be a vampire anymore. I want to be a werewolf. Now, there's a campaign theme to run on. It's got the great bumper sticker thing. You can imagine the visuals. I don't know. It's amusing, but it was kind of rambling and borderline alarming. But anyway, uh, that is Herschel Walker on the campaign trail. And this just in, Nancy Pelosi speaking on the House floor is giving up her role as the leader of the House Democrats, but she will remain as a member of Congress. Uh, I guess she agonized over this. In fact, there were widespread reports that she had taken home two versions of the speech So kind of went down to the wire. She did pledge four years ago that if her Democratic colleagues would support her for her second tour of duty as House Speaker, which also lasted four years until the Dems lost the majority then, uh, that she would only serve two more terms in that role. So had she decided to try to be the House Minority Leader next year, a lot of people would have thrown that back at her. At the same time, some people thought she would leave Congress altogether because of the horrifying and tragic attack on her husband, Paul Pelosi, who's got a long recovery ahead of him. But obviously, although she will be busy as a member of Congress, uh, it's not the same as being the leader of her party in the House. So, you know, she started off by talking about the first time she gazed up at the Capitol Dome and how inspiring it was. And she also made a reference to January 6th and defending democracy. And she said she had no higher honor than representing the people of San Francisco. But I'm sure this was a difficult decision for her. 35 years in Congress, you know, she reaches the pinnacle and now feels like it's time to give it up, even though, you know, it's a very small margin for the House GOP. Um, You know, politics was in her blood. Her father was the mayor of Baltimore. She talked about him being one of the first Italian-Americans elected to Congress. So she seems to be getting a pretty warm reception there on the floor of the House. And uh, I think it's kind of set that Hakeem Jeffries will be the new House Democratic leader and Pelosi will uh, do everything to support him. I believe that would be the first... um, black member of Congress to be either minority or majority leader. And so Republicans never much like Nancy Pelosi, but probably today is not going to be a day to attack her. Oh, one quick note. She talked about how much she enjoyed working with various presidents in her role, including George W. Bush, including Barack Obama, including Joe Biden. She skipped over this 
other guy, name of uh, Trump. Remember that time when he finished his State of the Union and she ripped up the script? Okay, that's the Pelosi news. Let's get to the big news, number one. You all knew this was coming. I knew all this was coming. And finally, it's official. Republicans taking over the House of Representatives next January, hitting the magic number of 218. You know, it's just one of these things where the counting, I mean, come on. We're more than a week after Election Day. Finally, another race could be called. They've been stuck at 217. You know, there are various counts. And so with all of the victory lap stuff, I mean, in fact, the AP has a story. It's got a big headline on Drudge today. You know, Biden takes global victory lap. That Originally, he was taking this foreign trip to escape what was expected to be a very bad election day for Democrats, red wave and all that. And instead, you know, he's able to go to all these foreign leaders and say, America is back. Um, But in any event, in the back of my mind, with all this clapping and everything, I'm thinking, okay, but Republicans, by every indication, are going to control the House. It doesn't matter if it's by one vote. Then you get to elect a speaker, appoint the committee chairmen, control the floor, and, of course, investigations and so forth. So we don't, there's still a half dozen races that aren't decided, so we don't know whether the margin for the GOP will be two votes, four votes, five votes, but it's going to be slim. Kevin McCarthy declaring the era of one-party Democrat rule in Washington is over. Washington now has a check and balance. Uh, So the Democrats held the House for four years under Nancy Pelosi winning it back during Trump's first midterm in 2018. They also held it for four years when they won it back in 2006 under George W. Bush until 2010. Uh, Republicans only had to flip five seats, so it was always seen to be uh, kind of a long shot. Um, One story says a super PAC aligned with House Republican leadership outraised uh, the Democratic counterpart by almost $90 million dollars. McCarthy, did we want something much bigger? Yeah, we did. Yeah, of course he did, especially because he wants to become speaker. Uh, We'll get to that in a second. So for all the finger pointing and everything, you know, I always said, well, you know, by next January or February, who's going to remember that? Because it fundamentally changes the balance of power here in D.C., Washington Post. Their gains fell well short of the red wave they once envisioned as Democrats countered with campaigns centered on abortion rights and fighting GOP extremism. And it's true that Democrats were able to hold on to the Senate. It would have been a whole different situation if the Republicans had been able to uh, capture the Senate as well. The slender GOP majority has forced many GOP members, aides, and strategists to come to grips with the prospect that their agenda might never come to fruition. Internal fractures have made it difficult for Republican House speakers over the past decade to control the far right wing of the party. Well, you know, I hope somehow, and Biden, you know, issued a statement uh, congratulating Kevin McCarthy. I hope somehow um, that the two chambers will manage to work together and pass some important legislation during these next two years, or it could just be, you know, pure gridlock, pure Washington theater. And McCarthy himself, you know, is going to have trouble putting together 
218 to become speaker and may need help from the Democrats because obviously uh, many on the more hard right edge of his party uh, are not wild about Kevin McCarthy. So let's get to number two because it fits right in. Hours after they were projected to retake the majority, House Republicans were discussing plans to investigate President Joe Biden and people around him. Uh, So Kevin McCarthy was on Fox News and he said, well, you know, we can be looking into uh, Biden's withdrawal in Afghanistan, immigrants entering at the border, then Congressmen Jim Jordan and James Comer were talking about plans to investigate politicization in federal law enforcement and, drumroll please, Hunter Biden's business affairs. And, And, you know, look, House Republicans have been talking about this for months, but Come January, they'll actually have the power to do it. Uh, McCarthy also made a reference to the origin of COVID-19, as well as Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas' job performance, okay, and whether there could be terrorists coming across the border. So you know how it works. And, And look, the Democrats did this when Bush was president, when Trump was president. You haul a bunch of cabinet officers and others uh, before committees and you engage in pretty aggressive, some would say hostile questioning. You maybe have hearing after hearing after hearing on the same subject. And then the minority, which was the Republicans, except on the January 6th committee, um, has to play defense. That's how Washington works. That's how politics works. Elections have consequences. And so, it seems to me, you know, when we talk about, well, the Republicans, well, they have a slim majority be able to put, uh, put forward their agenda. Well, the fact that there's a Democratic Senate means the Republicans can't really pass anything except in that sort of narrow range where there could be some bipartisan agreement. Because remember, even though you might pick off a couple of Democrats on a particularly controversial issue, you've still got a Democratic president who can veto this stuff. So it'll be... A lot of theater, and the key, I think, for the Republicans is to show that they can get something done. I mean, if after two years of running the House, if no legislation has passed, and it's all been hearings, investigations, subpoenas, and passing messaging bills that are destined to die in the Senate or get vetoed by Biden— Uh, then they don't really have a great case to take to the public in 2024. I think McCarthy is savvy enough to understand that. Uh, But we are looking at a very different environment compared to, you know, which everybody's got used to the last two years, unified Democratic control. Now, The Democrats had their own issues, which is why Biden couldn't get some of his legislation passed, thanks to Joe Manchin. And the Republicans will have to find ways to work with Marjorie Taylor Greene and others who have a very different view, shall we say, of the role of Congress and the role of government. Number three. So... The bad reviews continue to pour in for uh, Donald Trump's announcement speech on Tuesday night. Talked a lot about this the last couple of days, getting it from the right. 
as well as from the left and mainstream media. I have a whole column about this today on Fox. When you just sort of lay out the stories in different newspapers and segments on TV, it's just quite remarkable. I mean, Trump is being covered as a really evil guy. Not he gave a bad speech. And by the way, you know, there's this whole thing about, well, the speech was tedious, so we're not going to show it, and we're not going to talk about what was in it because it was full of lies, and Trump's become boring in this iteration. And then everyone in the media obsesses on Trump anyway for the last 48 hours, I would say. So here's liberal New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg uh, writing, as I listened to Trump speak about cesspools of blood, it was hard not to feel a sickening sense of deja vu. Somehow, seven long years after he descended his golden escalator, we're back to a place where most conservative elites are again united against him. Waiting for a Florida Republican to take him out, even as his fanatical base remains committed. You know, Trump got 73 million votes two years ago. I don't know, when you attack his fanatical base, you're kind of attacking a whole lot of those people. It's now up to the rest of us to decide if we're going to help him. Goldberg writing in 2015 and 16, much of the media abetted Trump's rise, amplifying his every provocation because it was fun and profitable to rubberneck as he bulldozed through the Republican Party. All that free media, which you got to give candidate Trump credit for at that time, helped catapult Trump to victory. Now he's forcing us into a do-over. And then, and this is a hint of things to come, DeSantis, a more effective politician than Trump, might do more damage to liberal priorities than Trump did. But Trump will do more damage to democracy itself. So this is a kind of a preview, I think, of what's going to be said about Ron DeSantis when everybody focuses on him, if indeed he runs, and if indeed he gets traction, and if indeed he's not one of, you know, five Republican candidates splitting the anti-Trump vote. So here's Jim Garrity in National Review, who sounds a little worn out having to talk and write and pontificate about Trump. And maybe the whole country is. I mean, it has been seven long years, ladies and gentlemen. Garrity, everybody already knows what they think of him. Very few Americans seem inclined to change their minds about Trump. His agenda is the same as before. Build the wall. Root out the deep state. He's a victim. Make America great and glorious. It is the same old narcissistic view of the world through a fisheye lens where all good things come from him and his self-described very stable genius and all bad things are somebody else's fault. If the Republicans nominate someone else, such as Ron DeSantis, at least the country will be debating what policies to enact. Jim says, if the Republicans nominate Trump, we're in for at least another two years of, what do you think of the latest crazy thing Trump said? And conceivably, if Trump wins the 2024 presidential election, we could be having those same arguments for another 2,258 days or six years two months and five days until Inauguration Day 2029. And then he also throws in this. Donald Trump is 76. Um, if he wins the nomination, he'll turn 78 during the general election. If he serves in the presidency another full term, he would be 82. Five months older than Joe Biden was when Biden took the oath of office. If Trump fans think Biden is too old to effectively serve as president, they will need to come up with a good argument to replace him with another soon-to-be octogenarian. And finally, Chris Licht, the uh, chairman of CNN, relatively new boss there, 
at a sort of a town hall meeting with employees that's been uh, reported now, also addressed this question of how much coverage should now third-time presidential candidate Donald Trump get. Here's what he said. We must not allow the craziness to consume us when covering Trump. Quote, don't fall for the outrage porn, he said. Uh, Lick continued that Trump's media strategy is to distract and create noise that's specifically designed to gin us up. Yes, and he's actually very good at it. And, you know, gets, Trump has gotten so much negative coverage uh, over the last seven years, and you can debate whether it's fully deserved or not. But I always say negative coverage helps him because he's still at the center of, you know, the news of the day, the theme of the week, you name it. Lick says the network must choose carefully about what actually matters, focus on things that actually have impact, so it won't all feel like noise. And then he says this, Part of his strategy is to make sure that everything he does gets a lot of coverage so that when he slips in something that's really consequential, like a coup, it feels like noise. And I don't want us to succumb to that. So Chris Lick letting his feelings show a little bit about the nature of Donald Trump's candidacy and record. And that's a debate that's going to go on. In fact, since I'm talking about it here, I've just decided we ought to talk about this on Media Buzz on Sunday. And um, I think it's good that he's speaking out, but I think it's open for debate, shall we say, how Trump gets covered, how much he gets covered, and whether that has any resemblance to fairness. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Story four, the right to same-sex marriage will become a federal law. That became clear yesterday when a bipartisan group of senators actually came up with enough votes to fend off any filibuster, known as cloture in the Senate. 62 to 37, they agreed, and the House, in this lame duck session, is obviously going to pass the bill as well that just in case the Supreme Court gets any ideas, Congress will enshrine this as a law. And 12 Republicans joining all 50 members of the Democratic caucus in the Senate to support this bill. Now, they tried to get this passed back during the campaign, and they were running into trouble. And they just said, you know what, we'll take the campaign out of it and we will pass this in the lame duck. And I thought, look, by that time, Republicans could well control the Senate. Maybe it'll never happen. You know, when Congress puts things off, sometimes, often, I would say, they have a way of not happening. And, you know, Joe Biden has already put out a statement. Love is love. 
and Americans should have the right to marry the person they love. Uh, and that brings us uh, closer, one step closer, he says, to protecting that right. Now, it shouldn't even be controversial. I mean, it's being portrayed as, you know, kind of an act of courage for these 12 GOP senators to support this. Does that mean when it comes to a final vote that all the other Republican senators are going to vote against it? What would be the point? I mean, I don't mean, you know, they can do whatever they want and they want to make a statement. But is the right to same-sex marriage, which has been the law of the land now uh, since the Supreme Court ruling in 2015, so controversial in conservative circles that these other Republican senators don't want to go on record as saying it's okay. They want to continue to suggest that they have are not supporting, you know, what would be described as the LGBTQ agenda. Well, look, they'll come up with all kinds of objections. Oh, it's a procedural thing. Oh, the Supreme Court's never going to do this. You know, they'll come up with weasel words, those who decide to vote against it. And Susan Collins, one of the 12 Republican senators, said it was time to remove the cloud over same-sex and interracial couples who might worry that, you know, they might have gotten married in a state that thinks this is fine, but that the, the right, their marriage, that is, would not be recognized in another state. Some have said this bill is unnecessary, says the woman from Maine, because there's little risk that the right to uh, have a same-sex or interracial marriage recognized by the government will be overturned by the Supreme Court, regardless of one's views on that possibility. There is still value in ensuring that our federal laws reflect that same-sex and interracial couples have the right to have their marriages recognized regardless of where they live. Now look, look who came out for this. The Mormon Church said we're fine with it. The National Association of Evangelicals said we're fine with it. The Seventh-day Adventists said we're fine with it. And this all got started because after the court, the 6-3 supermajority, overturned Roe, uh, Clarence Thomas, who himself was in an interracial marriage, said something about, well, you know, now that we've done this, we're going to look at other precedents. And people freaked out, and understandably. But the thing that gets me about this is, if you look at the polls... It's actually pretty popular. And this is a a sea change for those of us who grew up in a time when most gay and lesbian people uh, who weren't necessarily even in some sort of public role, in other words, they weren't politicians or big-name journalists or whatever, uh, nevertheless felt compelled to stay in the the closet felt that they might risk losing their jobs. I mean, as recently as 2012, it was a huge deal when Barack Obama and Joe Biden got out ahead of him in a Sunday show interview, and Obama was pissed, came out for same-sex marriage. So if you look at these polls, and the New York Times has some of them, 
Right now, 7 in 10 American adults say same-sex marriage should be recognized by law. Record high, according to Gallup. It's overwhelming among Democrats, but also majority support from Republicans. Now, back in 1996, when Bill Clinton, running for re-election, signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage between a man and a woman. That was it. Federal law. At that time, nearly 7 out of 10 Americans said, ah, same-sex marriage should not be recognized. So he was, uh, you know, bowing to the prevailing winds. But now, it has changed radically to almost 70% support. Because you know what happened? A whole lot of gay couples got married and the world didn't come to an end. And people who are not gay or maybe, you know, don't know any gay people or whatever saw that it didn't really affect them. And it became harder and harder to defend not allowing, it's sort of a pro-monogamy thing, not allowing people who love each other, regardless of race or sexual preference, to get married. Now listen to this. Even in some of the reddest states, public opinion is moving. Mississippi, which has a trigger law that it will ban same-sex marriage if the Supreme Court were to overturn it, support has grown from 32% in 2014, the year before the SCOTUS ruling, to 44% in a poll last year. Louisiana, a majority now support same-sex marriage protection, up from 42%. In 2014. So this will happen. It will probably happen in the next few days. And you can thank the 12 Republican senators without whom this may not have been possible. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Number five. Now, I have always made it a kind of a policy not to talk about crypto because it's completely unfathomable to me. The whole thing has always seemed like a house of cards to me, has always seemed like a scam. And, you know, a lot of people got rich off it, and that's fine. But I always just had the sinking feeling that one day it would all come crashing down. But I'm not enough of a financial expert. I certainly haven't fully researched this because I don't get it. I like to understand or, you know, invest my money in things that I have some grasp of. And there's a guy who, before this past week, you probably never heard of, I never heard of. He's a billionaire named Sam Bankman-Fried. Bankman-Fried. He's a crypto leader. He was celebrated by the media. He's a kind of a nebbishy-looking guy, you know, always shows up in a T-shirt and shorts. Um... 
he was on the cover of Fortune. He was on the cover of Forbes magazine, being hailed as, you know, a financial genius. And those cover stories right now, looking like that time when Elizabeth Holmes was pictured on all the cover of all these business magazines for her Theranos company, which turned out to be a pack of lies and for which she was later convicted. And it really has raised, it's shaken the whole market and it's really raised questions. So what happened, if you haven't been following this? Sam Bankman-Fried's company called FTX, it's a crypto exchange. It has just collapsed. It just filed for bankruptcy. $32 billion company goes into bankruptcy. It's under investigation by DOJ. It's under investigation by the SEC. And Bankman Freed himself, guy's 30 years old, uh, has lost his personal fortune. As the New York Times puts it in this very deep dive, he's gone from industry leader to industry villain. So Bankman Freed gave an interview to the Times. And the paper got criticized for, you know, just saying what he said. I mean, I want to hear from the guy who's just presided over this shattering financial event. He says, oh, you know, uh, you think I'd be getting no sleep, but instead I'm getting some. It could be worse. Um, he was once compared to Warren Buffett and John Pierpoint Morgan. But when FTX collapsed with an $8 billion shortfall, this is rippling across other financial firms. So he hadn't said anything. In the interview, he voiced regrets. Obviously, there's, a, there's spin involved, but, you know, why not interview him? He would offer only limited details about the main question, which is, did his company, FTX, improperly use billions of dollars of customer funds to prop up a trading firm that he also founded called Alameda Research? So that sounds very much like self-dealing and customers, investors, left holding the bag. Alameda had a large margin position on FTX, meaning it borrowed funds from the company. Bankman-Fried said, it was substantially larger than I had thought it was. And in fact, the downside risk was very significant. So where were you, bozo? Uh, billions of dollars involved. He said he did agree with critics in the crypto community who said he expanded his business interests too quickly. He said he had other commitments that led him to miss signs that FTX was running into trouble. Quote, had I been a bit more concentrated on what I was doing, I would have been able to be more thorough. That would have allowed me to catch what was going on on the risk side. So, look, it's, the, you know, his defense is basically, yeah, I'm sorry about this. Uh, I should have paid closer attention, but, you know, I didn't do anything criminal. That's a good try. Companies based in the Bahamas. And there were a lot of warning signs. Now, he kind of he kind of led this cloistered existence. Uh, he and a bunch of the other top FTX employees would live all together, and some of them would have romantic relationships, including Bankman Freed. First, he relocated the company to Hong Kong. You know, he's trying to get to a place where there's a 
friendly regulatory environment. I mean, the lack of regulation here is at the center of this. Reminds me of the savings and loan crisis when regulators didn't do their jobs. The industry collapsed and there were all these congressional hearings and like, how did this happen? And federal regulators utterly failed and a lot of people lost a lot of money. 2019, he moves the company to Hong Kong, as I said. One of the people he moved with was Carolyn Ellison. And he was involved with her. He says that they were romantically involved at times. No, his sources say they were romantically involved at times. When Bankman Fried was asked about it, he said they were no longer in a romantic relationship. So it's a very sweet deal. Alameda was run by his girlfriend, Ellison, who's undoubtedly going to be at the center of these investigations, which reminds me of Elizabeth Holmes, who relied on her boyfriend, who also ended up getting charged in the Theranos fraud. And then last year, they moved to the Bahamas, and they have, like, I don't know, five floors of a penthouse somewhere. And it's all very private. And the celebrated author, Michael Lewis, it has come out, spent six months with Sam Bankman-Fried, obviously writing a book, just as obviously that book is going to have a very different ending than Michael Lewis, whose first book was kind of a blowing the whistle on Wall Street, might have anticipated. But it showed you you know, the circles in which Sam Bankman-Fried traveled, how he could attract an author like uh, Lewis to tell his story. Now, there's more to it. A class action lawsuit filed two days ago against FTX, against Sam Bankman-Fried, saying uh, the company violated Florida law, misled customers, cost investors billions in damages. It was filed on on behalf of a particular Florida guy, no, not that one, <laughs> um, who lost money. And what's interesting here, to get in case you're getting bored here, I got to sex this up a little bit, right? The lawsuit names Tom Brady and his then wife, Giselle Bunchen, I should say ex-wife, Stephen Curry of the Golden State Warriors, businessman Kevin O'Leary, and also Larry David who made a Super Bowl commercial, Larry David of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And the suit says that this guy, who actually is from Oklahoma, even though it was filed in in Florida, put his trust in the company after watching all these celebs say, hey, you know, you can trust this place. Now, I think that's unfair. I think, you know, look, if you're investing your money based on what Larry David or Tom Brady says, and maybe... Somebody like Brady believed in it. Maybe he thought it was a good model. Maybe he was into crypto himself. I don't know. But then, you know, to put it in layman terms, you're a moron. And I don't think anybody can reasonably expect, you know, actors or football players to do the level of due diligence when they lend their name and their fame to this kind of company. Now, the Washington Post has a piece saying um, critics say this exposes a fundamental flaw 
in the whole $850 billion market for digital currencies. You think? $850 billion, that's staggering. Um, and so a lot of people thought, ah, get rich quick, right? Tom Brady thinks it's a good idea. But FTX operated outside traditional banking system. That's why it was so risky and potentially so lucrative. Uh, they act like banks and brokers, but crypto exchanges are not usually su uh, subject to the same type of regulation, insurance, disclosure rules that protect customers of traditional banks. You have money in a traditional bank, you don't make as much. But if the bank goes belly up, the FDIC is going to step in and you won't lose a dime. That's, you know, going back to the Great Depression. With this thing, the whole point was that it was shielded from regulations. And that's why it's such a mess. And that's why this is not over by a long shot. And in the end, a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money on crypto. Well, thanks for joining. I guess I've gone this whole time this podcast has been in existence without talking about cryptocurrency. But now I have. <laughs> and appreciate the chance to have an extended conversation with you. We also would appreciate if you would subscribe. You can get this ad free on Amazon Music and lots of other places. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.